Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming. Welcome to Hudson Institute's conference uh, on the general subject of China's increasing aggressiveness in the South and East China Seas, and in particular, its year-old effort to turn reefs into armed islands in the international waters. In international waters, I'm Seth Cropsey, a senior fellow here at Hudson and also director of Hudson Center for American Sea Power. The islands that are the immediate discussion of this morning's session um, are claimed um, after their construction to be Chinese sovereign territory. This supports such other illegal activities as extending China's air defense identification zones, uh, provocation of neighboring states' fishing vessels as they operate in international waters, uh, drilling for oil in other states' exclusive economic zones, and dangerous challenges to civilian and military aircraft and ships operating in and above international waters. In its effort to expand its sovereign reach at sea and as well to deny the U.S. Navy access to our treaty allies in the region, China has also initiated risky military challenges to Japan and to the United States. More recently, according to uh, a very good article by Rick Fisher and James Hardy that was published this week in IHS, IHS Jane's, China conducted a series of military exercises that were intended to demonstrate the ability of the People's Liberation Army to project land, air, and naval power into Taiwan's surrounding waters. In particular, Fisher and Hardy reported on the PLA's plan to exploit civilian ships to augment its amphibious forces. When I first visited China in the 1990s, I asked former Marine Commandant General P.X. Kelly if I should request a visit to China's amphibious base in the Southern Fleet. Don't waste your time, said PX. Their amphibious capability is negligent. Although China has worked in the intervening years to improve their amphibious capacity, it remains a work in progress. To augment it, the IHS Jane's article reports on the PLA's assistance in funding construction of a large number of ferries that civilian companies use and which would be available to transport combat troops and equipment in an amphibious assault. The May and June PLA exercise tested their vessel's use as part of an amphibious operation. It's likely that the ferries and other government-subsidized ships could transport between eight and 12 PLA divisions to a nearby objective. I draw your attention to this one of several Chinese actions as a contrast to Taiwan's diplomatic efforts to reduce regional tensions and promote co cooperation among East Asian states. Taiwan's President Ma offered an East China Sea peace initiative three years ago that aims to protect the sovereignty of disputed islands, 
put aside those disputes, encourage peaceful reciprocity, and advance joint exploration and the development of valuable natural resources. In a Wall Street Journal article that President Ma published at the time, he argued that while sovereignty cannot be divided, resources can be shared. Addressing Taiwan's unique relationship with China, Ma emphasized his support for, and this is a quote, no unification, no independence, and no use of force. There's a reason I bring this up, and that is that the differences between Taiwan and China symbolize the large differences between Beijing and the international community on what kind of international order each envisions. The international community stands for the rights of innocent passage on the high seas. It stands for the peaceful resolution of disputes. It stands for an international order based on law and long-standing custom. China's actions in the South and East China Seas demonstrate their belief in sovereignty based on self-interest, disregard for international law, and force as a means of resolving disputes. The islands that China has built and is building in the international waters of the South China Sea are evidence of their lawless view of relations between states. With us today to discuss in particular the islands are Mr. Paul Giara, uh, Mr. Giara, over there with the bow tie, uh, leads global strategies and transformations a firm that consults on national security, strategic planning, and military transformation. He is a long-standing and keen observer of Asia and will speak this morning on the large stakes that China's island-building policy raises. After his remarks, Michael Frodel, there's Michael, will discuss the commercial implications of China's island-building <coughs> efforts. Mr. Frodel founded and heads the Washington, D.C.-based Sea Level Global Risks Consultancy. He is an expert on maritime threats to the world's energy supplies, from piracy to interstate conflict. Mr. Frodel will address the commercial implications of China's island-building campaign. Finally, we will hear from Dr. Patrick Cronin, who, uh, as you might guess, is right here. Uh, Dr. Cronin is a senior advisor and senior director of the Asia-Pacific Security Program at the Center for New American Security. His previous position was a senior director of the Institute for National Strategic Studies at the National Defense University. Dr. Cronin is an expert on the Asia-Pacific and U.S. foreign and security policies in the region. He will look at the policy options that the U.S. has in light of China's policy. Following the speaker's 10 to 15-minute presentations, or for however long they speak, up to a certain point, I expect that we will have time for a question period. Uh, I hope that I will remember to say the same thing when the question period begins that I say now, and that is that when you are recognized uh, to ask a question, would you please be so good as to identify yourself and your, what do we say, affiliation? 
uh, where you work, et cetera, et cetera. So with that, um, let me turn the floor over to, uh, to Mr. Jara. Thank you, Seth. I'm very pleased to be here because I'm very dissatisfied with the way the topic has been framed so far. And the topic is, what is at stake in the South China Sea? Um, I'm going to try to frame this from my perspective. And uh, my apologies to those of you who are not Americans, because I'm going to take a very American perspective on this situation. But I think if I'm successful, at the, at the end of my remarks, you will agree with me that that perspective is actually a very global perspective. Um, the stakes are high because they're so fundamental and so substantial. And their asymmetry, the, the, the asymmetry between the, in the stakes between China and the rest of us, um, is one indicator of how important they are. Um, before I go any further, I really want to thank Seth, not just for inviting me, but for the timing of this discussion. Because the 15th of June was the 800th anniversary of the signing of the Magna Carta. And I think this is particularly important and germane to this conversation. Um, the Magna Carta, for those of you who don't know, or for those of you who have forgotten, was the great charter that established the rule of law for the English-speaking world, and its revolutionary impact still resounds today. In this sense, this is quite ironic, I think, we are the revolutionaries, and China is the counter-revolutionary state. The playing out of this ineluctable struggle in the South and East China Seas is merely one exemplar of a much larger conflict. And that struggle is disguised as a territorial conflict, but its roots go much, much deeper. Of Magna Carta, Winston Churchill wrote in his History of the English-Speaking Peoples, the, the underlying idea of the sovereignty of law being existent in feudal custom was raised by it into a doctrine for the national state. And when in subsequent ages the state, swollen with its own authority, has attempted to ride roughshod over the rights and liberties of the subject, it is to this doctrine that appeal has again and again been made, and never as yet without success. And this is, in my view, what is going on between China and the rest, riding roughshod over rights. It was at Runnymede in England on June 15th, 1215, it's hard even to say that date, that the idea of the law standing above the government first took contractual form. King John accepted that he would no longer get to make the rules up as he went and talk about setting precedent. From that acceptance flowed ultimately all the rights and freedoms that we now take for granted. Uncensored newspapers, security of property, equality before the law, habeas corpus, regular elections, sanctity of contract, jury trials, and the like. From the Chinese perspective, this is ideology so basic to our political, legal, and cultural framework, and it is totally unacceptable to the Chinese. The reason that the stakes are so high in the South and East China Seas is that China has taken that disagreement 
into the global commons. Our ability with allies to promote stability and unite efforts of collective defense and the preservation of peace and security must take into account the importance of these global commons. Throughout most of the 20th century, preventing an adversary from denying access to these global commons has been an essential strategic goal, and it runs right through our foreign and security policies. We must continue to assure access to the global commons, the air, sea, space, and cyberspace, precisely despite and because of China's challenges to it. The South China Sea and the East China Sea dispute touch on each of these separate and inseparable domains. This requires defending our rights and confronting China militarily. But first, before we get to the military aspects of this conflict, we have to assert our rights culturally and ideologically and politically. There was a divergence between English and American conceptions of Magna Carta. In the old world, it was thought of, above all, as a guarantor of parliamentary supremacy. In the new world, it was already coming to be seen as something that stood above both crown and parliament. This difference was to have vast consequences in the 1970s and equally vast consequences today. This is the fundamental rub in the dispute with China. The global commons are the current and future trade space of international stability and security. Thus, it will challenge the international system to protect modern society and the benefits that liberal capitalism and the free market bestow while defending the global commons that together from the form the keystone of the globalized world and which represent the principles of Runnymede. International emphasis on the vital importance of access to the global commons is a reminder that the international community expects a rule-based system and not one based on the arbitrary uses of power and exertions of ownership that the CCP evidences every day. Another example of the assertion of these rights is the four freedoms and the power of ideas in the relationship with China. It was in his annual message to Congress, what really was the State of the Union Address on January 6th, 1941, that President Franklin Roosevelt presented his reasons for American involvement in the fight against fascism, making the case for continued aid to Great Britain and greater production of war industries at home. In helping Britain, President Roosevelt stated that the United States was fighting for the universal freedoms that all people possessed. As America entered World War II, these four freedoms, the freedom of speech, the freedom of worship, the freedom from want, and the freedom from fear, symbolized America's war aims and gave hope to the following years, in the following years, to a war-wearied people because they knew they were fighting for freedom. Reciting this list is a reminder of why our principles rankle the CCP so deeply. These are the simple, the basic things that must never be lost sight of in the turmoil and unbelievable complexity of our modern world, he said. The inner and abiding strait of our economic and political systems is dependent upon the degree to which they fulfill these expectations. FDR went on to frame the four freedoms. 
He said that in the future days which we seek to make secure, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential freedom, human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way. The third freedom is that from want. And the fourth is freedom from fear. Setting out the rationale for why we would fight, he asserted that, no, there, that there's no vision of a distant millennium. This is no distant problem. It is a definite basis for a kind of world attainable in our own time and generation. That kind of world is the very antithesis of the so-called new world order of tyranny, which the dictators seek to create with the crash of a bomb. To that new order, we oppose the greater conception, the moral order. A good society is able to face schemes of world domination and foreign revolutions alike without fear. So what are the military implications of all this? Remembering that the military implications are fourth order considerations. The bishops and barons who had brought King John to the negotiating table understood that rights required an enforcement mechanism. The potency of a charter is not in its parchment, but in the authority of its interpretation. The constitution of the USSR, to pluck an example more or less at random, promised all sorts of entitlements. Free speech, free worship, free association. But as Soviet citizens learned, paper rights are worthless in the absence of mechanisms to hold rulers to account. In the Maritime Commons, and in particular in the South and East China Seas, where we most visibly, but not exclusively, come together militarily with China, these issues are playing out. Interdependence and interdependence in the 21st century is increasingly enabled by these global commons. In English common law, the term commons referred to a tract of ground shared by residents of a village belonging to no one and held for the good of all. In the past, great powers that were able to control the maritime commons were able to maintain their own strategic mobility and access, whether regionally or globally. The history of this is very long and very deep. This has been so from the time of the Etruscans and the Greeks, as nations who controlled the seas were able to intervene whenever and wherever necessary, and at the same time prevent their opponents from doing the same. History is replete with relevant examples of the interdependence of land and sea campaigns, the battles of Thermopylae and Salamis being just two from antiquity that decided the outcome of the trans-regional Persian invasion of Greece. During the late 18th and 19th centuries, British command of the ocean commons precluded the dominance of Napoleonic France and enabled subsequent British political and economic dominance for a century. The essentials of this strategic um, dominance were key to England, remarking upon England's resultant strategic advantage at the time. Lord St. Vincent, then the first Lord of the Admiralty, famously said in 1801, referring to Napoleon, I do not say the Frenchman will not come. I say only that he will not come by sea. Throughout the 20th century, command of the maritime commons during both world wars and the Cold War enabled European and American naval powers to prevent the domination of Eurasia by rising powers. Hitler could neither cross the channel nor defend against its crossing. The Soviets, 
despite significant investment, could never dominate the seas during the Cold War and suffered strategically with the rise of a globalized maritime coalition and a horizontal escalation from the sea. The historical lesson is acute and timely. It will take tremendous effort to avoid the calamities of Xerxes I, Cornwallis, Hitler, and the Kremlin. And to enjoy the strategic assurance the Allies and the Western Alliance achieved in World War I and during the Cold War, it will take, likewise, tremendous effort. To understand from an historical perspective the level of effort necessary, it does well to recall that before Trafalgar, Nelson had been at sea constantly for nearly two years and returned to fight the battle from his first shore leave in 27 months. Assuring access to the global commons will require similar levels of vigilance and endurance. It should be clear that American and Allied naval commanders and planners face two basic tasks, both in the South and East China Seas, but more broadly, literally globally. The first is to prevent the denial of the seas by China by military coercion, attack, or enclosure in the sense of the commons and literally what is occurring now. This has a multitude of ramifications for strategy, doctrine, organization, command and control, technologies, force structure, force levels, and sustainability. But this is only one side of the equation, that of self-defense in the assertion of rights. Equally challenging in detail, but also clear enough in concept, is the other side of the equation, that of the strategic offensive in denying the commons to China, in turn. Now this is particularly complicated by the continuing reality of phase zero. In military parlance, phase zero is that period during which uh, there is no so-called active warfare. Throughout the Cold War, everything we did in the context of the strategic competition with the Soviet Union because of the presence of nuclear weapons was phase zero, including the Korean War and the war in Vietnam. Phase zero. So therefore, the militaries had to plan for, maneuver, and operate so as to avoid conflict, but from a power of, excuse me, from a position of power and deterrence. Likewise, military planners are going to be and remain confronted by this reality, made further complex by the fact that the same kind of civilization-ending capabilities exist now, not only with nuclear weapons, but with weapons in space and with weapons in cyberspace. These military implications are clear enough, but never more so when the high stakes and clear principles first enshrined in the Magna Carta and insisted upon since by successive guarantors are used as the objectives of strategy and planning. In closing, the asymmetry of the stakes in the South China Sea and the East China Sea highlight the drama of this challenge. The cultural, political, and ideological circumstances run very deep for us as a nation as, and as the guarantor of these fundamental rights first proposed by King John's barons, but since enshrined in the roots of our civilization. 
Finally, Magna Carta's 800th anniversary is a reminder that we will have to fight and give some indication of how we will have to do so. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Um, let's uh, move on to uh, Mr. Frodel there in Connecticut. First of all, I want to uh, thank Mr. Cropsey for inviting me to speak. Unfortunately, I can't be there personally uh, in person. Uh, I uh, want to thank also the other uh, speakers and the Hudson Institute. Uh, uh, my conversation, in a way, is going to dovetail nicely between uh, Mr. Jars and then Dr. Cronin's. Uh, what I'm looking at and what I want to talk about is um, the, um, the business implications of what's happening with China's development of uh, artificial islands in the South China Sea, um, and not only for the world and the commons, but also for China. And I think there's a mixed bag there, both good and bad news. Um, uh, uh, are we still okay? You're hearing me okay here? Is that okay? Yeah. Yes. Okay, very good. Um, interestingly, about a week ago, a spokesperson for the uh, China Ministry of Foreign Affairs has uh, been saying that, uh, was saying that the uh, reclamation projects on certain islands in the South China Sea were almost complete and that China would be proceeding to uh, simply building on these new artificial islands. Uh, it was an attempt to uh, calm tensions, uh, as the Chinese saw it. But uh, what uh, I find uh, difficult, and uh, it's part of the work we do with the clients we have, uh, especially in insurance, uh, is that the Chinese are insisting that the islands are being developed principally for civilian purposes. And uh, when you take a review of even the metrics of what the Chinese are talking about, the different uh, markets, uh, it doesn't really hold water. Uh, and uh, if there is a better uh, analysis, I think that it needs to be uh, articulated. I agree with uh, Mr. Jar and his saying that he's unhappy with the framing of the issue from his perspective. Uh, I think there's a lot of people in business who are also unhappy with the way the South China Sea has been discussed in business, uh, in papers and in meetings and on television. Um, there's things that I think the business community is very careful about broaching because they feel that they, there are many third rails, as it were, in dealing with China expanding into the South China Sea. Uh, I'll give you a few examples of these issues, and uh, I'm sure you'll be able to draw the military strategic implications, but I think there are uh, business implications right there. Um, the, uh, the first issue I'd want to address is this argument that's very common that China is being very aggressive in terms of making historical and legal claims uh, to the South China Sea, uh, even perhaps more than the East China Sea, because of the vast energy resources that are uh, contained at the sea bottom. Uh, even the United States has provided uh, uh, statistical data uh, that would tend to go with this argument. Uh, it's not our job to determine whether there really is that energy there. Uh, what's interesting is uh, one voice in the wilderness that uh, we came across in the past, I'd say, 12 to 18 months, observed, uh, and I can't remember if it was in the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal, that the way China was going about in terms of trying to extract oil from the South China Sea was perhaps 
more most uh, uh, politically fraught uh, and commercially uh, 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 challenging ways uh, because of just the uh, the uh, tensions it was creating, i.e., that the total net cost to China in terms of a, a barrel of oil uh, would be just simply prohibitive. And to explain that to you in another way is just to remind you that about a year ago there was an oil rig that was moved into about 120 miles of the uh, Vietnamese coast in waters disputed between China and uh, Vietnam for many years now. Of the tensions, uh, according to reports from Hanoi as well as Hong Kong, uh, there was up to 120 uh, Chinese ships uh, 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 armored and armed up uh, Coast Guard uh, 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 patrol boats as well as uh, steel-hulled fishing boats that, according to some sources, were actually manned by Chinese military special forces. Uh, 120 ships were running three levels of circles, clockwise and clockwise, around that ring, uh, trying to repel uh, up to 60 Vietnamese uh, Coast Guard ships as well as wooden ships. And even according to the Chinese, in a letter that they uh, uh, presented to the United Nations, uh, according to the Chinese, there had been 10,000 examples of rammings between the Vietnamese and the Chinese ships. Um, when you look at the simple cost to the Chinese of maintaining that many ships for that amount of time, up to about two months, you look at the cost of the PLA Air Force, apparently uh, from the sources we've seen that uh, there was up to five aircraft uh, relaying themselves doing constant combat air patrol over the uh, uh, oil rig so as to keep uh, the Vietnamese from flying over the area. Uh, and there's a mention of up to five PLA Navy warships being kept at a distance over the horizon. The Chinese were especially careful not to try to militarize it, at least in terms of appearances. If you look at the amount of resources that China spent, even if that oil well that would be drilled later based on the positive quote-unquote results of that exploration were ever to go and function, the cost per barrel would be astronomical if you had to maintain even a fraction of that amount of protection around the rig. Uh, the, uh, the more common sense way to approach this would be, as the gentleman was saying in that article, which if somebody from the audience needs to, I can look it up before you're at the meeting, uh, would be simply for China not to uh, 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 make such an effort vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Vietnam. Uh, but to sit down and proceed with multilateral negotiations with the other South China Sea nations and arrive at an uh, allocation of the uh, uh, waters involved and allow the Vietnamese and the Filipinos and whoever else to uh, invite foreign oil companies or energy companies to come, exploit that oil, and then basically have China buy it on the free market it would be much more efficient for China to do, and much cheaper, and we wouldn't have these political tensions. So from an energy exploitation perspective, what China is doing is actually increasing the cost of energy to itself in that area, as well as making it very difficult for companies that want to come in and exploit that oil. One more case in point is because of the sort of uh, uh, odd way the Chinese have been pursuing this from a supposedly business perspective, Vietnam has been renewing uh, contracts for exploitation of uh, blocks off of the, the coastline with both uh, India and Russia 
blocks that in both cases the oil companies involved uh, are pretty sure are not going to be gushers in terms of uh, drilling, but uh, uh, contracts that are renewed simply because, or to a great extent, because Illinois wants to make sure that the Indians and the Russians stay involved in terms of keeping the Chinese from moving into that area. At the same time, the Chinese have been wooing Western oil companies, including uh, uh, majors in the United States, uh, the obvious names, and trying to get them to uh, lease the blocks that would be in contest to, in dispute with Vietnam. As it works out, those companies have maintained uh, a, a standoffish perspective and tried to simply uh, develop oil in areas that are not contested. So there's a cost to society, too, in terms of uh, once the Chinese pursue this uh, what this sort of odd uh, uh, logic or math of uh, exploiting resources, deterring the proper allocation of research and exploration uh, and extraction of energy from this area. Okay, second point, um, fisheries. Uh, the fish stocks in the South China Sea are very, very important, very major. And again, we see a pursuit by the Chinese of trying to control those resources in a way that's neither useful or uh, optimal for the Chinese consumer, the Chinese market, or for the other countries around that area. Uh, the, the simpler argument is that, um, there, again, the Chinese were to uh, pursue multilateral negotiations, figure out who has what right to what and what remains as uh, commons. Uh, it could be much more efficient for uh, fishing fleets of lower-cost countries in terms of labor, such as Vietnam the Philippines, to actually go out and fish that fish and sell it to the Chinese. Uh, that never comes up in any discussions uh, about why uh, the Chinese arguments that they have to do this to protect their resources uh, make sense. It, again, it's it, uh, uh, counterintuitive to business people. Uh, but it isn't very uh, much ventilated in the press, again, because of the, uh, the uh, chilling effect of, of raising those issues. There's also a cost to the fishing industry in terms of what China is doing with the pouring of sand and creating uh, uh, thousands of uh, artificial acres on these uh, reefs and rocks. There's a study that's been uh, 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 reported out of the Philippines that the cost of this latest reclamation could be up to $100 million a year to the Filipino fishing industry uh, because of the loss of the uh, fisheries habitat uh, in the reefs. Uh, this, again, it doesn't make sense for people trying to exploit resources in a sustainable way, in an intelligent way. By the way, when I, I mention sustainable, it's also interesting to see that up until only recently, even the international environmental community has been very quiet about the impacts of what the Chinese have been doing in this area. Uh, they've spoken up now finally, and I think there has been, again, an, an evidence of a chilling effect uh, of uh, not wanting to be seeming to be critical. Uh, two more aspects. Um, uh, one is um, uh, uh, more directly related to the work we do, which is uh, looking at uh, piracy, maritime terrorism. Um, the presence of the Chinese uh, in the South China Sea in particular and of casting the whole issue as a matter of uh, law and order, of maintaining uh, security for civilian purposes and not wanting to militarize the issue even when it's discussed. 
uh, unfortunately is leading to a draining of uh, law enforcement uh, uh, assets, Coast Guard, fisheries patrol ships from other countries that are being sent in to maintain a cordon around the Chinese uh, uh, ships, for example, with the Coast Guard. Nobody really wants to respond to Chinese Coast Guard ships uh, or fisheries ships that are in places that uh, neighboring countries don't really approve of. No one wants to send their own navy to that point uh, because it would be seen uh, as an escalation against the Chinese and could also give the Chinese a chance to send their own navy in, which is much more impressive. So one of the impacts that we've heard uh, and seen in talking to people in Southeast Asia is this uh, opportunity cost now, uh, that the presence of these Chinese uh, uh, ships around the islands and around the oil rigs and, and also trying to chase off uh, uh, fishing boats from the Philippines and uh, places like the Spratlys, the opportunity cost is that these limited resources for developing nations are not being used to actually do what they're supposed to do, which is basically avoid uh, 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 or deterring pirates, deterring uh, misuse of the, uh, the, uh, the fish stocks. Uh, we're seeing these these zones, these uh, uh, low patrol that are being created. And especially now, recently, if you've been watching the news, you'll notice that there's been a missing uh, oil tanker that was just found overnight uh, uh, off of Cambodia. Uh, there's been a series of attacks against oil tankers. Uh, just as ships leave northbound out of the Strait of Malacca and reach into the uh, southernmost area of the South China Sea, it's by no accident we think that it's been happening because of the low level of patrols. And there was an indirect confirmation of that about a month ago, a few weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, by the uh, uh, chief of the Singapore uh, Navy, who in responding to press inquiries about, well, are you uh, going to respond to complaints by foreign shipping organizations that uh, you need to do more to prevent uh, uh, piracy? The, uh, uh, Singapore Navy chief uh, said that uh, the uh, uh, discussions were not going on between Singapore, Jakarta, and Kuala Lumpur about increasing patrols, but that up until then, the uh, concerned countries had been careful not to quote-unquote conflate Southeast Asian piracy issues with that of South China Sea, meaning, when we've tested this with uh, other people here in Washington and abroad, that the implication is that putting a Increasing the presence of these three nations that is necessary to deter piracy could be misinterpreted by China as an attempt to obliquely uh, stand up to its presence in South China Sea. That's a very bad situation uh, where you're looking at, again, this opportunity effect or impact uh, of what's going on. Uh, first, um, there's this issue in terms of not just uh, China trying to pursue resources in a way that don't make sense in terms of the price signaling sort of uh, situation, but also in terms of the allocation of risk uh, capital and insurance. Uh, by that, uh, we give examples, for example, last year, uh, the uh, oil rig that was positioned off of China it came to our attention and was, again, closely discussed uh, without a lot of, with no press in, uh, of the fact that the oil rig uh, off of Vietnam, although it belonged to a Chinese oil company, had been put there for exploration purposes, 
and was self-insured to some extent through a, uh, a, a, a offshore uh, a captive insurer in Hong Kong. Uh, the majority of the risk capital was being uh, provided by uh, insurers in London, um, and uh, it created a, a, a certain amount of unease in the market that the Chinese had taken an oil rig uh, and gotten insured uh, uh, for something that costs up to a billion dollars. It's not that they have a billion dollars insurance, but that hundreds of millions of dollars of risk capital provided by the international uh, uh, insurance markets have been provided for this rig, uh, and that if there'd been some sort of uh, spinning out of control of this ramming between the Vietnamese and the Chinese ships, that the rig could have been a casualty, and it would have cost the insurers a, a, a pretty penny. And, and as things turned out, from what we understand, there were discussions behind the scenes, and uh, eventually the uh, 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 coverage was uh, 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 revoked. Because although it wasn't a declared war zone, uh, the, uh, uh, the premiums that had been paid for the use of that rig had never really foreseen the rig being put into a situation where there'd be such an amount of, of, of tension with a neighboring country. We would say that um, that that may serve also as a uh, indicator of when the Chinese say that the islands will have a primary civilian use, that that probably is going to create problems with Chinese businesses trying to find insurance to develop a presence on these new artificial islands. Um, if the oil rig were to ever be returned to Vietnam, we think that it would probably have to pay a premium, an added risk premium, if people were to try to build hotels, resort locations, whatever, to create presence on those islands, uh, even to send cruise ships. Uh, we'd be very curious to know as to how much of that risk is being laid off to the international markets. Uh, my impression would be that foreign uh, insurers would be very uncomfortable and careful because of the disputes going on about who actually owns these islands and these waters. They don't want to insure a cruise ship that's going into basically what could be uh, a very uh, hot area. Uh, it makes the uh, insurable uh, interest of the Chinese uh, debatable. Now, uh, just to wrap up here, uh, and to give us uh, a sense of, of what we're extracting from all this, um, be it for energy expo exploitation, fisheries management, uh, also in terms of maintaining the, the low costs of, of, of uh, uh, operating strategic lines of commerce, the, uh, the whole idea of the Straits of Malacca and all this that the Chinese involved. All these purposes from a business perspective would be served by having the Chinese sit down with their neighbors and resolve these issues and not try to do it in a unilateral fashion or a bilateral fashion. Uh, we think that the business community uh, uh, can serve to help stabilize this situation by uh, speaking more directly about the true business costs and opportunities of what China is doing presently versus the way it would normally be conducted in terms of business. We think the uh, Chinese uh, could be responsive to such an approach, especially if we look at the Chinese business community. And the, the two examples that we'll use for that, and then I'll wrap, is simply that um, the Chinese business community uh, not only has not redeployed that oil rig off of Vietnam this year, and everyone thought it would be that done, 
it was moved past Vietnam and is now off of Myanmar and not creating any problems. The second goal on the left here is the issue of software um, piracy. Uh, there have been changes, dramatic changes in the negotiating position of the Chinese with the United States government about going after piracy of software. And from what we've been able to figure out, it's because the Chinese government is asking Chinese businessmen uh, to develop their own software to do indigenous innovation. And as we find out now, the business community in China is telling the government to crack down on software piracy if, in fact, they want Chinese businessmen to invest in this. So uh, the approach we're taking, basically, is uh, to look to having not to target China for uh, business practices, but to basically not give it preferential treatment either, to uh, exploit resources in a cooperative fashion and, and become a true member of the uh, international uh, business community. Thank you. Mr. Fertile, thank you. There will be time for questions afterwards. And now let me turn the floor over to Dr. Cronin. And thank you, Seth. Um, well, <laughs> we've gone from the Magna Carta to Fishingmen, and um, I'm going to come in focusing on more U.S. policy, national security, and, and regional security issues uh, as we think about the topic of this session today, island building in the Spratleys. We haven't talked much about island building. Challenging the international order in the South China Sea. Um, first of all, let me just say that the South China Sea matters economically and strategically, and we've heard from both previous speakers some of the reasons why. Uh, the Strait of Malacca alone joins the Indian and Pacific Oceans, and through this uh, you have uh, a quarter of all traded goods in the world flowing, uh, a quarter of all oil that travels by sea, and one-third of the world's uh, LNG passing through the Strait of Malacca and through the South China Sea. So this is a vital waterway for the global economy, not just for the claimant states of the South China Sea. It's also, uh, the South China Sea is important strategically for reasons that Paul Jara uh, was trying to describe, including the fact that uh, Chinese control of the air and the sea would effectively displace the United States' ability to project power inside the so-called First Island Chain, um, which could in turn put all of China's maritime neighbors at the risk of coercion. Now, that's a strategic issue. We can talk about uh, the rights and the claims uh, separately. What, it, what China is doing in particular in the South China Sea is uh, more than doubling the landmass of the existing South China Sea that existed 20 months ago. Um, they're building up particularly seven reefs. Um, all of these are low tide elevation uh, parts, or major parts of them are low tide elevation or, or submerged features that they're building artificial islands on. Um, in especially the Spratly Islands and the Spratlys, the Fiery Cross Reef, for instance, the Chinese are erecting a 3,100-meter runway, an airstrip that will be able to essentially field any existing Chinese aircraft. Uh, they've built the substance last August, along with a port facility. Um, and if you think about Mischief Reef as well, which is in the uh, Philippine um, exclusive economic zone, um, they are. Uh, They've added nearly 1 million square meters to Mischief Reef uh, in the past year or so. Um, they're building up uh, another airstrip on Subi Reef um, and, and so on. If you think about Fiery Cross Reef, Johnson Reef, Mischief Reef, uh, in terms of the map of the South China Sea, 
I like to call this the Chinese moving down an effective line of control about 140 miles south um, from about 12 degrees north latitude to below 10 degrees north latitude. And this gives the Chinese potentially a much bigger springboard for projecting power if that's what they intend to do. And, of course, we don't know fully Chinese intentions, and that's one of the concerns of the region and of the United States as well. Um, you know, but at a level, this at one level, this is about regional and global order. It's not just about uh, the islands themselves, as Paul Jarre was suggesting. Um, you have overlapping claims with there are six claimants uh, involved here, uh, including China, Taiwan, um, Malaysia, Brunei, Philippines, and Vietnam. But there are other countries that are affected, even within Southeast Asia, big big countries like Indonesia, uh, but also Singapore, important. Uh, economic hubs like Singapore are very much affected by what's happening here in this, these gray zone situations. So without an enforceable law, uh, without a binding code of conduct, um, essentially might makes right, and China is exploiting uh, gray areas, gray zones, with a pattern of behavior that I've called tailored coercion. It's also known as salami slicing tactics, just incremental steps of sort of moving forward two steps and occasionally moving back one step if there's pressure or there needs to be a recalibration. Um, unlike our incremental strategy in Iraq, this one has been called brilliant by some. Um, and uh, to advance uh, the influence and control of, of China without actually crossing a threshold that would likely trigger a strong unified response. And so this um, redefinition of, of, uh, of control of the South China Sea is basically implementing de facto uh, China's nine-dash line claim to the majority of the South China Sea. So you can see that um, there are other claims as well that, that China has that they've not yet built on. So just the, the seven areas that they are building on and have been building, and now they're stopping the reclamation and island building at the moment, um, they could go forward in future months and years and build on places like James Shoal, which is you know meters below the water off Malaysia, um, where the Chinese have put ships uh, and Coast Guard vessels uh, uh, over the last couple of years in particular to guard their national sovereignty. Anyway, what is the, what's the Chinese strategy here before we get to some responses? Well, first of all, China is uh, clearly reemerging as a major power and wants to reclaim its what it considers to be its national uh, rights and its natural role. Um, and the claims that they're making here are actually longstanding. They're not making new claims by and large. These are claims that have been long-standing, but China has not really had the wherewithal uh, to enact. The Chinese re rejuvenation, China dream that Xi Jinping has talked about is sort of fraught with unknown consequences and can't simply uh, be assumed to be benign from a regional perspective. Uh, as the rate of economic growth uh, slows down in China, Xi Jinping's overriding goal of preserving and strengthening the Chinese Communist Party requires an alternative source of legitimacy, and that legitimacy right now is increasingly coming from nationalism, including in these maritime claims. Uh, this maritime assertiveness that we've seen in the last seven years in particular, and I date that seven years mostly because of what happened in the East China Sea. You have a, a business solution, if you will, in terms of China and Japan agreeing in the East China Sea in June of 2008 to uh, joint exploration of energy. But by December of that same year, the Chinese then intruding into the waters around the Senkaku, Dayutai Islands in the East China Sea to contest Japan's uh, exclusive uh, administrative control over those islands. 
Um, and, and so we've seen a pattern of increasing assertiveness really uh, since that period, even though there have been previous periods of use of force and assertiveness in previous decades. Um, but now China has the capability. They've been investing very heavily, especially since 1995 uh, and the 90s forward, and that's when we started to see payoff. If you read Timing Chung's book on uh, Chinese uh, sort of uh, science and technology and research and development programs and military modernization, you'll see just how China, uh, over especially a couple of incidents, the Taiwan uh, Strait Crisis of 95, 96, um, and the bombing of the Belgrade Embassy as well, led the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and the Chinese elite to start to invest massively in military modernization, um, and, and that included everything in maritime power from oil rigs and coast guards to modern missiles and ships. And we started to see that pay off uh, about the time of the massive uh, financial crisis, 2007-2008, and so these things coincided. China started to have much more capability and saw much more running room in the international community, in the region to take advantage of opportunity, what it saw as opportunity to reclaim, again, longstanding uh, rights. Um, the military strategy for the United States, unfortunately, and, and the focus on the rebalance as a military strategy, falls short of understanding how to engage the Chinese, because the Chinese are mostly seeking uh, a positioning strategy at this point. It's a positioning strategy of uh, gaining better position and influence, um, maybe blocking and denying future moves by the United States and the region, it's Wei Qi, it's not free chess, as even Bob Work, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, talks about. There's an assumption, it's very much a Western uh, Clausewitzian strategic assumption that we're, you know, that concentration and maneuver are all that matter. Well, the problem with that is that it presupposes we're in a military-to-military -military engagement. China is not interested in a military-to-military -military engagement, at least not with any country of its size or capability. China is interested, though, in asserting what it thinks are its uh, national rights, protecting its national rights, and they take a very uh, nationalistic view of, of what those rights are, and that's one of the challenges. How should we, as a region, in a, in a globe, determine uh, how to settle those disputes? And that's what Paul Jarrah was talking about. We need to find common set of rules, not uh, unilateral changes, um, and, 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 and might makes right kind of approach. So what can we do about this? Because the United States and the region really obviously has not been successful in stopping the island building. The island building is ceasing for the moment and just for the moment uh, right now because we're about to enter into the strategic and economic dialogue, a major bilateral U.S.-China dialogue that will essentially set up the Xi Jinping-Barack Obama summit in September. So there's high politics in terms of the timing, the tactical timing. Um, there's also the fact that the arbitral panel, this international tribunal, looking at the Philippines' legal case, the case that the Philippines felt compelled to uh, put forward after Scarborough Shoal off of the Philippines and Philippine waters, um, was essentially commandeered by the Chinese. Um, it, this is in disputed territory, but the, but the Philippines backed off, the Chinese took over essentially, and the Philippines filed a legal claim under to adjudicate the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea and, and how exactly a country can determine its legal claims. It doesn't determine sovereignty, but it can determine the basis of some of the claims, like the nine-dash line. That's supposed to go be reviewed beginning this next month, but it's also then supposed to lead to a final uh, judgment early next year. And the Chinese island-building campaign has been calibrated toward that 
legal agenda, that international legal agenda. So right now they're stopping while the tribunal reads the case. They don't want any extra headlines coming forth. And uh, meanwhile, the, the, the building spree happened so quickly in part uh, because it wanted to preempt essentially international law. Um, and that's something that we shouldn't be uh, supporting. So what can we do about this? Well, first of all, we engage China. China's not an enemy. China is increasingly a competitor, and China is increasingly intensifying com competition in the East and South China Seas, as well as in cyberspace and other domains. Um, but we need cooperation broadly with China on the global economy, but on other global issues. We should maximize areas where we have common interests, but we should not be afraid to take on China when our interests diverge. We should not be afraid to stand up for our interests and the interests of the region and uh, the rule of law. So um, that's why we have to live with uh, complexity. We have to live uh, with even contradiction. We have to have regular institutionalized engagement with the Chinese, even at the military level. I think I've, I've been on record saying that I think the REM of the Pacific exercise, for instance, is mostly a diplomatic event. It's not mostly a military capability building event. Um, and, and it's the, the message for me for the United States to send to the region with the REM of the Pacific exercise that happens every two years, and China was invited last year, and there are big questions now whether they'll be invited next year, is that China, um, you know, it's not about China. It's about the American vision of the future of the region. We have a vision, a positive vision, that we bring to the region, which is about an inclusive, rules-based approach. And we cooperate in REM of the Pacific exercises to work on areas where we have common interests, including humanitarian assistance, natural disaster, uh, search and rescue, and so on. Um, there are other avenues, though, to uh, take on where China's interests diverge and, and things to exclude China from. And we can talk about where we might exclude China um, from. But engagement is not enough. So even while we're engaging in memorandum of understanding how to avoid mid-air collision, collision at sea, this engagement is not enough because obviously their island building binge was undeterred by this. We can and should be imposing diplomatic costs. Again, not enough, um, but actions should have consequences. We have to stand up and uh, enumerate where we think actions are objectionable to our perception of uh, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, to other norms and standards, uh, and what we think the region should be uh, ascribing to. The ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, is a brittle consensus organization that even when it has consensus, it then issues a communique. It's not an action-oriented organization. It will not be. Nonetheless, its legitimacy is important for the United States to act. And we have to recognize in a positioning strategy game with China, uh, we need to keep as many Southeast Asian nations uh, on the same wavelength as the United States is pursuing. That's why we have to be deeply engaged with the region to understand what's happening on a daily basis. You cannot go into the South China Sea every six months suddenly, parachute in, and think you can pick up the conversation. This is an ongoing uh, area of contestation that will continue to grow, uh, and it's very important. Um, we need to be keeping the maritime assertiveness of China in particular, but maritime rights and uh, responsibilities in general on the regional agenda at the highest level, and that goes beyond the Southeast Asian nations. So what we call ASEAN-centered institutions includes um, the East Asia Summit, for instance, which has, meets every, every year at the summit leader, at the summit leader level, uh, and includes eight outside powers, including the United States, Japan, China, India, Australia. So those countries can play a bigger role um, to keep this on the agenda. 
we can impose legal costs supporting the Philippine uh, case on the law of the sea, for instance. All of these can serve to sort of slow down um, the, the Chinese only, only marginally, to be honest. These are not significant immovable objects I'm talking about. These are just, a, these are setting the positioning strategy for the United States and the region on then doing the right investments and the right maneuvers that can be sustained over time to shape this order, this, this region that is so dynamic and important for the 21st century. Um, what, we, what we're trying to do is to mobilize the region to accept these investments and actions that will be needed to counter and ensure that assertiveness does not reap rewards. Um, and I can contrast the open running room that China's had in the South China Sea with the fact that in the East China Sea, China's actions have been more muted lately um, because the U.S.-Japan alliance is very strong and the Japanese have responded with strength. Um, now, there are other dangers there. We have to be mindful of that. I can, there's a whole other discussion. I just came back from Ishigaki Island, and there's a buildup among uh, the islands. Ishigaki Island is the island where the Japanese nominally have administrative control over the Senkaku Islands, and they're building up coast guards, but they're building up on other islands. The Chinese have now announced a new coast guard uh, base and facility. They're building up on the mainland as well as uh, some offshore islands. So there's a competition that's slow and simmering there that's still happening. But it's the South China Sea where China's really had no immovable object uh, placed in its way. Demonstrating the rule of law with freedom of navigation and air exercises is important. That's why I fully support things like the P-8, the Poseidon patrol aircraft. Uh, Paul's an old <coughs> P-3 pilot. He knows all about maritime patrols and how important this is. But the P-8 aircraft flying over um, Fiery Cross Reef and Mischief Reef, for instance, to make a point of law, a point of law which is to say that um, if you build an artificial island, an artificial island has a, a very clear definition in the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea that entitles you to zero nautical miles of territorial and air limits. It does allow a 500-meter safety zone, and the United States did not fly within a 500-meter safety zone of where there might be activity going on. But this is a point of law worth making for the United States. Um, now, we need to be leveraging information. Um, the, uh, uh, I think the um, maritime def uh, sort of domain awareness, as it's called, creating a common operating picture, creating greater situational awareness can be done at multiple levels. It has been done. If you go to the CSIS website, not my current think tank, I've worked there before, though, uh, they've got a great Asian Maritime Transparency Initiative website. That's really the definitive unclassified place in the U.S. right now where you can see all of the pictures of the latest construction and what's happening in the South China Sea, wonderful imagery that has been leveraged in the past year for broad dissemination, global dissemination, for the Chinese as well, for everybody. Um, and this can be done in the region at places like the uh, Information Fusion Center at Changi in Singapore, unclassified un information sharing broadly for South China Sea, but also for humanitarian assistance and for other contingencies. And then the United States can, can also, at a much higher end of fidelity, uh, can provide a state-of-the-art information sharing with allies and partners and build a wider web of maritime domain awareness that's very critical to having early warning, early warning that could have helped the Philippines not get into the Scarborough Shoal scrape of 2012, by the way. Um, and the fact that China's objecting to information sharing in this region is a very good point as well that the United States wants to make. Um, if China objects to information sharing at large, well, then what won't they object to? 
I mean, there's nothing more defensive than just open information. So if China objects to open information sharing, do you think they're going to accept, say, oh, missile sales to Vietnam? Uh, uh, we know the answer to that question. But the point is, it's important to demonstrate to the region where China is drawing the lines in ways that are arbitrary and, 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 and serve Beijing's self-interest, but they don't serve the interests of the region. They don't serve the interests of the rule of law and of regional order going forward. We need to build partnership capacity in this region. The recent decision to fund $425 million over the next five years of partnership funding for countries like Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia, and others is at least a start. This is a drop in the bucket, but nonetheless, uh, it was much better than the zero dollars that were there before Senator McCain and others uh, added, added money to this. Um, we need to take steps uh, not to militarize the South China Sea. That's not our goal. Our goal is to make sure that at least the countries in the region have a chance to stand up for their own sovereign interests, their own minimal defense, their own minimal coastal defense uh, as well. Um, that's why ending the lethal arms ban to Vietnam is a good idea. We need to be selling patrol aircraft, to, for instance, to Vietnam. Um, they need to move out from just the very narrow coast to be able to see their exclusive economic zone. Uh, just to take an example, the Philippine Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement will allow some rotational forces, um, but this is all going to be marginal and small, very long term. Uh, it's not going to stop fundamentally what China's doing. Um, but this is a long positioning game that we're playing here. Indonesia as well, with, with the President uh, uh, Jokowi's maritime awakening or, or, or fulcrum uh, focus has a great potential for cooperation at the Coast Guard level uh, and maritime level more broadly. Uh, building up uh, and continuing with the plans of bases in the Marianas. I mean, U.S. territory in Guam is an undertapped resource for the United States. And as Paul Jarre and I know very well, because we've, we've, we've hosted a conference out there last year where we brought countries of the region to Guam, and they saw U.S. policy and strategy in a whole different light. There's so much potential for amphibious and for joint and combined exercises and training, uh, conferencing in the Marianas um, that uh, is removed from the flashpoint areas of the South China Sea, East China Sea, but allows um, a very clear demonstrable way of building capacity and, and demonstrating long-term presence. Um, we can be leveraging the Asian power web, as I've written in other reports, in terms of the natural increase in cooperation. It's not just China that's re-emerging. Asia's re-emerging. Asia's rising. Um, you know, it's the Indo-Pacific. And, and, and other countries are building up bilateral, trilateral security cooperation, and we can weave them into this discussion. Um, I think the presence, finally, you know, the, Undergirding all of this engagement, all of this, these, the diplomacy, the law, the building, the partnership capacity, um, we still need to invest in American comprehensive strength. Uh, Hank Paulson uh, was with him at the Naval War College this week. I mean, without getting our own fiscal house in order for the long term, without having a strong economy, without having things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership that look to the future of trade with the most dynamic region, the United States will be a wasting asset. Um, and anything we do on the security side will be vastly diminished. We have to have prosperity. We have to have uh, strength at the same time. And, and that's why, you know, my mantra has been uh, cooperation through strength. Let me just end with a more strategic point uh, from my friend Ronald O'Rourke of the Congressional Research Service, who's assessed the situation that the United States, at a maritime level, has to leverage the world's oceans, which are two-thirds of the world, after all, 
uh, in naval power gives us the ability to convert the global commons um, into a maneuver and operations medium for protecting U.S. power ashore and otherwise defending U.S. interests around the world. You know, ultimately, from a national security perspective, we are living in a maritime age where we have to protect these issues. But this is the insurance. This is the means of maintaining the global commons. It's not looking for conflict. It's actually trying to preserve peace and build order, uh, even with a, a reemerged China. So I'll stop there, Seth. Uh, thank you, Patrick. Um, the last point that you made um, about the importance of sea power is uh, uh, leaving aside the question of prosperity and debt, um, particularly important. I mean, uh, you mentioned Ronald O'Rourke. The same uh, congressional analysis tools are saying that they uh, have been for the past couple of years, including Ron, that uh, um, the Navy's uh, budget for shipbuilding is something between a quarter and a third less than what's actually needed to pay for what they want to buy. Um, and you could add the Coast Guard to that as well. Right. Anyway, um, on that optimistic note, uh, let me, uh, uh, let's turn the, um, the floor over to uh, questioners. If you would please uh, identify yourself and who you're with, uh, with whom you are, and um, professionally that is, and, uh, and to whom you are addressing the question, we can, we'll have time for several questions. Thank you. Otto Kreischer with Sea Power Magazine. This is both to Mr. Cronin. You mentioned several times law of the importance of the law of the sea, China in violation, and others. We're not in a signatory of the law of the, law of the sea. We, we've abided by most of the the, the restrictions in, in there, but are we weakened in our position because we're not a signatory to the law of the sea? This question arises a lot about the fact that the United States and the successive administrations of both parties adhere. Uh, to the tenets of the Law of the Sea Treaty, um, but we, our Senate has not ratified the Law of the Sea Treaty. China, on the other hand, has acceded to the Law of the Sea, but doesn't adhere to the tenets of the Law of the Sea. So which one is in a stronger position? Well, I think the United States is in a stronger position at a policy level still to do this. Well, ratifying the Law of the Sea will not change all these problems. From my larger perception of trying to build regional order and demonstrate American willingness to work with others on a common vision of rules-based approach, I think, yes, we need to ratify the Law of the Sea Treaty. Uh, thank you. A reporter from Voice America. I have two questions to, uh, to Dr. Caroling. And if I didn't get you wrong, uh, in 2012, during a Congress hearing, you were saying that the South China Sea will be a battleground for the uh, transition of global power. So uh, do you still hold that view, and uh, do you think it is a time? This is the first question. The second question, uh, I'm, I was reading some articles in, uh, in, in Chinese. Some say Be Beijing's recent announcement of the end of Tucson reclamation work actually was a sign of compromise, of backdown. And uh, uh, on June 17th, 
the Japanese, one of Japanese officials said, we cannot accept as a done deal. So the Chinese uh, audience was asking, why China is backing down and the US and its allies cannot accept as a done deal? Uh, that's the second question. Thank you. Um, well, thank you for those questions. Um, you know, the 2012, my discussion then, I issued a big report on the South China Sea, and I was pointing to a series of, I've done a series of studies really since 2010, looking at how the contest, contested maritime commons uh, in Asia Pacific in particular uh, will be a growing challenge for the United States. So the report and the testimony in 2012 was pointing out that the South China Sea, and this was of course in especially the wake of the Scarborough Shoal incident, which really uh, ratcheted up the attention. Um, I wrote a piece even in the New York Times. The fact that the New York Times was interested in the South China Sea, is, it's not a regular issue. You'll find a lot more issues on the Middle East every day in the, in the New York Times. You won't find very many pieces on the South China Sea until somebody screams bloody murder. And basically, people were screaming bloody murder in 2012 over Scarborough Shoal. Unfortunately, the lesson we gave the Chinese at a Scarborough Shoal was that extended coercion works. That is, the Chinese could leverage their relationship with the United States to leverage, to put pressure on the Philippines to back off, um, and the Chinese would essentially step in. That's unfortunately a lesson we're still paying for in the South China Sea. I don't know about a battleground. Uh, battleground, again, suggests only military. We're in intensifying competition in the South China Sea, and I think in the East China Sea as well. That has not really subsided. Um, and this is going to continue to be uh, contested. But it doesn't have to lead to war. Um, it, it, it may well likely lead, probably lead, to more incidents. Um, it'll definitely lead to more perceived provocations and uh, challenges. But uh, we have to think about the hard security issues that Paul Jara has talked about, even while we're dealing with these immediate sort of questions on rules and claims. You know, the sec second question, I'm not sure that I, um, uh, I fully understood. Um, because I thought you were talking about Japan suddenly, and I'm, I'm not sure what you, I, I'm not sure I heard the question. I'm sorry. The question is, they say uh, China is actually unifying backed up by uh, ending the reclamation at Philippines. Yeah. Uh, so what would be the answer Well. I heard you again, but I'm still not sure I understand the question. But let me just try to address a point related to what I thought I heard. Um, the, the Chinese would love to get credited for uh, making concessions um, by simply stopping their assertiveness momentarily. You can look at that two different ways, obviously, right? You could look at it from the Chinese perspective and say, well, we are being restrained. You know, why aren't you giving us some credit? There has to be some credit there. You have to have a basis for talking. But we would be very naive if we thought that the Chinese were changing their strategy. So let me just take a look at a completely different part of competition with China and the United States, the cyberspace. So when the United States government decided to go through the, the very provocative step of uh, indicting five PLA uh, members over cyber espionage um, and really ticking off the Chinese in doing so, knowing that the Chinese would not change their behavior um, there is another point here, which is to, again, put down a point on the rule of law and to, and to see whether you can mobilize, in this case, international rules about cyberspace uh, to make this point. So much of what we're trying to do with the Chinese is not 
really thinking we're going to change their strategy. After all, these claims are long-standing. We're not necessarily challenging Chinese claims. We're, we're, we're challenging bad behavior. We're challenging behavior that doesn't accord with the norms of the region. That's what we're trying. And that's a fine line to walk, but it's the line where we can mobilize the region around that. So I'm not going to give China credit uh, for making concessions by momentarily stopping. I did suggest the tactical reason for doing so. We've got the SNED dialogue, um, and we have uh, the Philippine international legal ruling uh, being read this next month, and then we've got the summit coming up in September. Let's see what happens in the fall with uh, the fortifications that go on the artificial islands that have just been built. And again, we can keep checking now, thanks to information, uh, on places like the Asian Maritime Transparency Initiative website. I have a question for uh, Paul. Um, I think you did a, 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 a very good job, all the panelists did a very good job, but in particular of distinguishing between China's approach to law, order, um, and the, the one that you characterized beginning with Magna Carta. Now, Patrick is talking about um, some sort of an arrangement where we can kind of work our way through differences and um, alter behavior or else at least uh, come to some sort of rapprochement. What, where does this fundamental divide that you discuss kick in? I mean, what's the end state? Where does the divide kick in? That is to say, when do we have to do something about it, or when did it begin? What happens given the, I mean, is there a necessary collision between two <coughs> extremely different, very uh, polar opposite views of international order? Well, there won't be a collision if we don't stand up for these fundamental principles. And so far, frankly, we haven't. Uh, instead, we see an incremental legal approach, if I can use the term in that way because it's more a clerical approach, um, and um, a hope that somehow we can avoid conflict when, in my view, the conflict is already underway, and the outcomes are, unfortunately, going to be quite dramatic and drastic. But this kind of collision is not only is it not unprecedented, but in fact, it's the rule, if you will, of how these things work themselves out between status quo powers and rising powers, between the defenders of the current order and the disruptors of that order. So we find ourselves in the worst possible situation with the Chinese quite cleverly taking full advantage of it because um, the result of the end of the Cold War was that we relaxed the vigilance, which is the eternal price of liberty. Um, as a result, the Chinese um, calculated, and I think correctly, that we were on the wrong side of the military and political and economic and cultural and ideological dimensions of this conflict. Um, 
it's, it's small comfort, but some comfort, that China seems to have overplayed its hand. And I think my sense is that we've now turned a corner here in Washington with regard to the Kissinger line, which is that this will all work out and everybody will get rich in the process. And if one questions that fundamental premise, then uh, we're already well on the way toward a denouement of this conflict. The question, of course, is whether or not we are prepared to continue to be the guarantors, not only of global security and stability and the rule of law, but our own interests in that. One of the intriguing ironies of some of the uh, coverage of the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta is that between England and the United States, it is the United States that has taken it more seriously and has elevated it to a higher level of concept. But a, a level of a, a, a concept that depends upon, as the barons and the bishops depended upon, force to back up their claims against the king. Now we have to consider whether and how we're going to use force to back up our claims against the king, in this case, which is China. I think we have time for one more question. There's a microphone. Thank you. My name is Jeanine Nguyen, with Voice of Vietnamese Americans. I appreciate the presentations and the opportunity. My question has to come back with the theme of this uh, discussions to um, rest, restore the international order or the rule of law. And you talk about the Magna Carta. So the question is, what is, what is the enforceable mechanism to restore the rule of law in case of China violating that. And it has violated in many occasions. At the WTO, China violated many laws. Changing now is on the way to change the law of trade. And at the South China Sea, it built military uh, ports and runways and, and militarized the whole area. It built bases and it has attacked many countries there, fishermen without arms, by its own armed ships. So it has violated the law. Exactly what do you propose as penalty to China? It violated the OPM records of our four million personnel. That's confidential and that's violated. That's, I would consider that's an attack to our deep national interest and security. I would call that an act of war. So what exactly would you recommend as an enforceable mechanism or a cost? And what would you recommend to be on the table for this coming S&ED talk this coming week? What would you recommend President Obama to put on the table to President Xi? Thank you. Uh, let me start. I'm sure Patrick will have plenty to say in closing. Um, 
The first thing is I think we have a very strong ideological and cultural and political position. The question, of course, is what to do with that position. The second is that I think despite the strength of, our, of those positions and those attributes, it's important to recognize mistakes, not only when they have been made, but while they're being made. Um, Will Rogers once said, the famous American humorist and political commentator said, when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Um, the big mistake, the biggest single mistake I think we made was at the end of the Cold War thinking that somehow all of this was going to take care of itself. And in particular, essentially our own disruption of the international system, which was essentially the withdrawal from Southeast Asia and the South China Sea. And, and somehow believing that um, it would be okay. And no matter what the Philippine Senate said, it, it was going to take care of itself somehow. So I would say to first undo that mistake. The second is I want to believe in the, in the core of my being that we can in non-military ways address this problem with China. And I think that there are many non-military things we can do. Patrick Cronin uh, today and, and elsewhere has done a masterful job of laying out those non-military alternatives. However, the final conclusion in my mind is that this is not simply a theoretical debate between the way China is running China and the way we see the rest of the world and China's, and in fact it's an intrusion on, by China on the rest of the world, on the, the rights uh, uh, and equities of the rest of the world and in particular in a militarized way. Um, whether or not China wants to fight, China has chosen to express its position in a military way. So I think that the first thing to do is to rebuild the intellectual and the cultural perspectives of the U.S. military that will enable it to plan for and operate from a position of strong deterrent force. We need that, um, but it's not sufficient to address the, especially the urgent uh, near-term challenges that we're facing right now. I think the, um, you know, we have to be realistic about the region we're dealing with. And Jeannie, you know the region. Um, the Chinese tried to bloody the nose of Vietnam with an invasion um, some time ago, back in 79, and they were embarrassed. We shouldn't exaggerate China's ability to suppress and overwhelm the region because of the strong national will of other countries to protect their own rights. That's a huge opening for the United States to be able to build new partnerships with countries as diverse as Vietnam and India and others, Indonesia, as well as old allies. Um, and uh, we ought to be doing more of that. But we don't want to engage in feckless behavior. Um, fecklessness like drawing red lines and then not acting on them only convinces the world that we're weak. Um, even our Scarborough Shoal handling 
unfortunately had the unintended consequence of making China think that we were just going to roll over. South China Sea was indeed theirs. The Nine Dash Line, why not? Um, and that was a, a big mistake. So we have to undo that, uh, that mistake. But nobody and no country in the region is interested in the United States confronting China in a way that leads to serious instability. Let's just be aware of that. So when the United States undertakes actions that create a sense of instability in the region, we have to embed those muscle moves inside diplomacy. That's why we need a comprehensive strategy. We need to then be able to go, as, even after a small little muscle move like the P-8 aircraft, we then have to talk about the next meeting of the ASEAN Regional Forum and talk about the SNED and talk about the summit meeting. We have to be able to follow up with constructive diplomacy that still makes the point. Not backing off, let's keep growing our defense and our capabilities, our strength, our network, our allies, our partners. That's a given. That's the, that's the strength undergirding the ability to keep trying to cooperate with China, recognizing, and this is the final real recognition here, we have to recognize that war is not in the interest of anybody. Nobody wants war, not even China. So therefore, we're stuck in a world of competition and cooperation. Unfortunately, that competition is going to grow in this maritime space. It's going to grow in cyberspace. Those are givens. So we're going to have to do more uh, actively to do that, and, and um, we should be prepared for that. And I, you know, I agree with Paul Jara's idea of the strength we need undergirding everything we're doing, but we have to recognize to implement right now in the world we're in, um, we have to be in, uh, m more nuanced and, and more sophisticated if we're going to operate in Southeast Asia, if we're going to operate in the Indo-Pacific generally. Uh, Michael, uh, the, the question was uh, in particular from the Vietnamese uh, perspective, um, what sorts of things can ought to be done uh, to uh, address Chinese behavior in that part of the world? discussions so to have better resource allocation, better functioning of the markets, that the, uh, uh, it's funny, we haven't talked even about TPP today, the, uh, the uh, trade pact that the president's trying to get uh, fast uh, track authorization for. Uh, we not only have a diplomatic and a military approach to uh, preserving the commons and, and helping uh, Asia continue in its development, we also have a very strong business uh, uh, angle that we can pursue with Asia. Uh, and it's in the interest of all the parties, as I pointed out, even for Chinese business people, to get that respect of uh, international law uh, adopted by their leadership. So I would say that we shouldn't underestimate the ability of uh, the carrot and stick in terms of business. Uh, it's simply not as a, a, a question of, of, of having a, a fist in a velvet glove, but also to be uh, uh, pushing this issue of uh, questioning what the Chinese are saying at one level, that they're doing simply civilian things is for the benefit of their businesses and all, and to engage in more uh, in a, a, a critical sort of a dialogue there, I think the business community, although it hasn't been very active and it hasn't been very vocal, would be very, very uh, uh, respond very positively to uh, 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 an approach that involves diplomacy, military, and business development. Thank you, Michael. 
Uh, I'd like to thank uh, all of you for joining us today um, in uh, what I think has been an excellent discussion. Um, in particular, I'd like to thank uh, Paul and Michael and Patrick for their fine presentations and good answers to the questions. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again at, uh, at a Hudson event uh, that will continue the discussion of this subject in the near future. Thank you. Yeah.